Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525. Hey guys, it's Morgan Zeggers. Welcome back to the show. Today I'm answering your questions on books, my favorite ones, the ones I suggest you get immediately. And then of course, that larger question of how to start growing your library. I think everybody needs one in their home. And especially if you have young kids, I've seen studies before on how it's really, really good for child development and development of their character and their interests if you, as a parent, have a bunch of books in your home for your kid to see. So it's really cool when you get down to the scientific parts of it. But bottom line is I think you need to have a library. I understand it's kind of hard to just build your own library, especially if you're just balling on a budget like I am. So I'll give you some of my tips. Let's get into it. But of course, before we talk about books, have you ever picked up a towel set? Because it felt super soft in the store, then you go to use it, and it just isn't very absorbent. Basically, a towel leaving you out to dry. That's why MyPillows developed the MyPillow Towels Towels at Work. It's crazy. For $49.99 with promo code MORGAN, you could get a six-piece towel set with two bath towels, two hand towels, two washcloths. That's $49.99. Promo code MORGAN at MyPillow.com with a 10-year warranty, 60-day money-back guarantee. I have the black ones and the white ones with green plants in my white bathroom. It's very peaceful and calming. If you want this, go to MyPillow.com. Use promo code MORGAN. Thank you. Okay, so I get a lot of questions about books, so many that I was like, you know, I could actually do a whole episode on this. And honestly, I could just blab about books for an hour to begin with. So this is kind of a wonderful combination here. Let's start off with some of my general favorite books because I get a lot of questions on that. And then we'll get more into how you can acquire more books, the ones that I suggest you to look into, how to get started, and of course, how to do it. When you're trying to buy a bunch, how do you do that if you can't necessarily just drop thousands of dollars on the internet to buy all of the classics? (laughs) Because that's kind of what it takes these days. To start, I get a lot of questions more so about like, Morgan, what do you read beyond the political stuff? Because it's kind of clear, yeah, I read all the historical books. I love the classics. I did an entire podcast series with Turning Point USA on the Federalist Papers where we went through all 85. It got cut off because now I'm in New York with the family stuff. But um, we went, we're in, at what? We had to pause at like 50 something, but we went through the Federalist Papers one by one. And I just love that kind of stuff. And we'll talk more later in the episode about Some of the classics that I think you should get regarding history, patriotism, American history, especially our government, our founding. But for now, I get some questions about like, what else do you read beyond the political stuff? So I'll answer this in the sense that my favorite fiction book, it's actually perfect timing because my favorite fiction book is called One Second After by William Fortune. And I've talked about this before on previous episodes. But it's interesting timing because of this balloon thing that came over from communist China, the spy balloon. Everybody's talking about it. You don't need me to break that one down. We all saw what happened there. But if you've been looking at the Internet, you might have seen a commentator or two or a person or two posting about something called an EMP and how the balloon could have carried out an EMP attack on the country. 
Now, I did not know what the heck that meant until I read the book One Second After, which is, again, a nonfiction book. EMP stands for Electromagnetic Pulse. And basically, if we get hit with an EMP attack in America, depending on the size, it could wipe out all electric things in the country. Just gone. And imagine what that would do. Okay, everything's just gone. Down. So in one second after, that's what happens. America gets attacked with an EMP. And I believe it might have been Newt Gingrich, the former Speaker of the House, who wrote the foreword of the book. It was somebody really big, and I already can't remember, but I'm pretty sure it was Newt Gingrich. And he basically writes a message in the beginning of the book saying, listen, the American people do not understand how serious the threat of an EMP actually is, how real the threat is, and how it it's something that the government is actively worried about constantly. Like, it's not some far off thing that, oh, it can never happen. It's actually a very real threat that we always have to be guarding ourselves from. And it would have the exact, nearly the exact impact on our country, on our personal lives, as it says in the book, as it plays out in the book. So the book is called One Second After because basically the EMP hits. All electricity, all technology is gone, including all of the cars, except for the really old, really manual ones. And those are more and more rare every day. So this happens and the book walks through what happens in a community, in an area. And it starts with this this man and his family. What happens one second after this goes down, an hour after this goes down, and then it carries into, okay, now it's been a day. What's happening in society? What happens after a few days? What happens after a week or two? What happens after months? And it shows how quickly society breaks down and it was fascinating. So I think that the impact of this book was really strong on me too because I randomly, I can't even remember how I found out about this, but it came up on my Audible app because I had the subscription to Audible, which is a big suggestion for you guys. I don't really listen to a lot of news stuff anymore, a lot of that really hyper-politicized stuff, but I do have a subscription to Audible and so where I used to listen to maybe, I'm sorry Matt, I I I used to listen to maybe in the background Matt Walsh commentary on YouTube, right? I would listen to his show and I would do my work throughout the day with that playing in the background. Now, I don't even really want that kind of political commentary because I feel like it just gets me all amped up in a way that I don't really like. And so I've replaced that with my Audible books. But I've always, for the last few years, had an Audible subscription. I just encourage you guys, If the, I think it's like 10 bucks. I'm not really sure. But it's totally worth it for me because I listen to books constantly. And sometimes I, I just don't really have a mu- much time to sit down and actually read a book. I wish I had more time to do that kind of stuff. Um, so this came on to my Audible suggestions or something in March 2020. And in March 2020, we all know what was happening. We were being told that we had to stay at home for 15 days to slow the spread. And then it turned into 30 days to slow the spread. And so in my personal life, I had recently left my apartment and was in the, okay, where do I go next? Am I, I didn't really like where I was living. And so I wanted to move out. And so I was just kind of hanging at my parents' house for a couple months, like a couple weeks or something. Literally, the timing of this was crazy. We get told to do the 15 days to slow the spread. And I'm like, well, what am I supposed to do? At the same time, my dad, who was retiring from the military because he was full time, he was transitioning out of the military and in that process transitioned to the reserves. And he was in a place stationed out of Utah. So we're in upstate New York. 
he got put into a reserve section out of the state of Utah. So COVID hits right as all of these events are happening in our family's life. And my dad, chances are crazy on this, because of that, I think it was in Oregon or whatever hospital it was on the the West Coast that got sparked up to deal with the COVID patients in that first few weeks of COVID really happening. The National Guard out of Utah got sent, deployed to that hospital that was built up for the COVID patients. Now, long story short, that hospital was never actually really put to use. I think it was like a million dollars a day and it was just some big show, right? It was patients never really ended up there. But needless to say, when those guard guys got deployed there, the reserve people, including my dad, got sent to backfill their positions because they were in the reserves. So my dad gets notified in March when this is all happening right in the beginning that he's going to get deployed and they said it was going to be until like August or who knows. So he was going to be gone for like eight months of the year or something long and crazy like that. And so my mom would have been alone on their property, which is kind of large and it's in a remote area and it's on top of a mountain and, you know, it's a lot to deal with and it's in the winter. So the plan was for me to go stay with my mom. My dad would get sent out to Utah and we would just kind of deal with this COVID thing. So when my dad left, he gave me all these little projects that he was hoping to have taken care of that year, including we were going to build this like clover patch and and all these different things. We wanted to build this stepway of rocks down a steeper side of the mountain. It was like these little projects that you want to get done in spring once everything starts to warm up. And we were being told that my dad wouldn't be there for that. So I am starting to carry out this list and do a lot of little outdoor projects that my dad and I had planned on us doing together, but he wasn't there. And I started listening to this book one second after as I am outside doing these projects. And it just was this vibe. It was so interesting. And you really have to listen to it to understand, but it really had an impact on me. And it was the first time I started to become more passionate about the cultural societal aspects of politics and of values because I, I've told you guys this before I used to just be like oh I want no taxes I'm like a low tax Republican girl and I vote Republican and I vote red and all this stuff and I really just was so focused on the economics I was like we can leave the rest of society alone but we just want zero government in our lives stuff like that you know what I mean and so when I listened to this book and heard about what happens and how things become more primal and structured back to kind of like the old ways when you have the modern luxuries removed from you, I was really not appalled, but I was, my eyes were really opened to the fact that a lot of what we deal with here is very out of touch with how humans have operated for a very long time. Let's get into some of those lessons and because it might not make sense. The first thing that really struck me, and this is why I became more interested in the culture and in the differences between men and women and why I'm so passionate about it now, is because women in the book become immediately (laughs) dependent on men again, okay? I know it's like we are just so forced into this narrative that there is nothing different between men and women these days or boys or girls, physically, mentally, emotionally, nothing. We are complete equals. And if you try and talk about anything having to do with the differences biologically, physically between men and women, then you are just a woman hater, right? But in the book, you have immediate dangers placed back onto women because we become the weaker group in society. And the scene where they set this up is like, 
everybody's commuting back home because you're on a busy highway and all of a sudden an, EM, an EMP hits. There's no electricity. None of the technology works. And that includes pretty much everybody's car. And so everybody's car dies. And you have men, women, a bunch of people stranded on a highway where they can't go anywhere. And now the sun is setting because they're commuting home from work. So immediately, and that's what, again, one second after. So now you're like an hour into it. Immediately people are like, wait a second. Am I about to have to walk home? Uh, how many miles to get to my home? And the women almost immediately become victims under physical attack and threat from men that want to do bad things to them. Okay, I'm not going to share the details. That almost immediately happens. And when I remember hearing that like, oh my gosh, we, we truly are so far removed from the fact that we as women have had to get protection from men up until this point in America and in the modern West, in modern civilization, where we have full protection and safety. And yes, you know, there are still threats out there. I do encourage women to carry concealed carry on their body always. I'm always doing that too. But it was really a, a shock to my system of like, wow, we are really out of touch with how things used to work for thousands of years. And perhaps this is playing into why we don't appreciate men the way we used to. But in the book, it makes it very clear that once again, women have had to go backwards in the sense that wait a second, this idea of progress can really only exist. This idea of equality can really only exist if women are safe and technically don't need men for physical protection. So my lesson in this that I got was like, wow, here in 2023 now, in modern America, women have never been so safe and so privileged. And we're told the opposite, right? We're told that it's a very dangerous world for women right now here in America and, and we are constantly under attack and you see the Me Too movement and we're, we're like true victims. But I would argue that we have never been so safe, not only that, so privileged. And if these modern luxuries that we live with and if this modern economy was taken away from us, all of these things that we've become so accustomed to, we would simply not be equal again. OK, and bringing in that financial aspect of it, we are also blessed as women to have an opportunity because of this modern economy to earn money. This isn't just something where you have to be a physical provider to have worth in the economy. You can find a lot of opportunities to provide for yourself because we live in this modern time. So that's something to also appreciate to women. It's very empowering for us if you are in a situation where maybe you're not married or it's before you're married or you need to also bring income into your family because you're struggling financially. We should be very thankful for all of the stuff that we have these days. And the other lesson in that with the family unit, with this idea of men and women being different is, you know what? Just because for women, what once were considered weaknesses, like our physical abilities, just because those things are now not necessarily direct threats to our lives anymore, because we have so much safety and protection in this very cushy, safe, modern world, it doesn't mean that we should just give up all of our natural strengths now too. 
Because for some reason, just because women being not as physically strong as men is not a huge setback to us in society, it doesn't mean that we can't lean into our more compassionate and feminine ways. And for some reason, the left wants us to not only act like we aren't weaker physically, but they also want to act like we don't have our own natural feminine strengths. And that makes me really sad because you'd think being pro-women would be encouraging women to lean into those strengths. But what am I doing? I'm going on a little rant and I digress. Moving away from that lesson about women in general was as you get more into the book, you start to see that there is clearly going to be a majority of people out there that have no idea what they are doing. Imagine you have no more access to water. You have no heat or cooling in your house. You have no access to food beyond what is in your your pantry. And for the most part, people don't necessarily stock up, right? Not everybody's a prepper. For me, I always have a large amount of food stocked in my house for emergency situations like that. And it actually goes back to when I was in Texas my first year in 2020 during that winter storm. It might have been in 2021 at that point. But I was there my first year for the winter in Texas where they had that big ice storm and the grocery stores, the highways were literally shut down. Like they, they closed the highways over a little bit of snow because they didn't know how to manage it. And then the power went out and people were without basics. And I was very unprepared. And I only had a bag of rice and, you know, some random things in the pantry. But I only had really a bag of rice and breakfast sausage in my freezer. And so I was making rice and breakfast sausage for days and days and days in a row. And I remember being like, how did I get myself in this pickle? Why am I not smarter than this? So I needed that personal experience to really jolt me into like, Morgan, this could have been so much worse. And I was not prepared for it. So that's why I became more of a prepared woman in that sense. So basically that second lesson was how we are so out of touch with the earth, with surviving, with how to get by day to day, and we dangerously rely on modern luxuries to survive. And if most people, (laughs) like they had to in this book, if most people in America had to just snap back into the old way of living, which means, you know, getting your own drinking water, providing shelter and heat for yourself and your family, finding nourishment, basic things like this, starting a fire, they would die. And that's what happens in the book. It really did when I first was reading this and then connecting it to how unprepared we are in America. I I just kept wondering, like, when did it start to happen? Like, what luxuries did we start to get? What generation was it in our country where we started to just completely detach from the ways humans have lived for thousands and thousands of years. It's super embarrassing. And for me, it's, again, another thing that made me passionate about this and how I want to make sure that it's not going to happen for me and my family. I want them to be very connected to our roots, to the primal ways of living. Now, here's the next thing that was really interesting about this book. And this goes out there to all the people that share these memes about how they just want to run away from society, live off grid, blah, 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 escape the commies, all this stuff. This goes for you guys. The book makes it very clear. And again, this is supposed to be a very accurate depiction of what would happen. The book makes it very clear that in any emergency situation or end of world scenario, you cannot survive alone if something like this ever happens, okay? The meme of living on a homestead when the world goes to crap is just not that real. And and yes, you could you could argue with, argue with me that like Morgan if you got the right location, if you got the right stuff, if you've prepared enough, then you're good. I it technically could happen. But this is number 1 why a lot of people 
<laughs> they get kind of confused when I say this. People think that I am so interested in living on a homestead and being detached from social and being off the internet and living that kind of lifestyle because I'm trying to like escape the future communist uprising. But I hate to break it to you guys. If the communists rise up like they do throughout history, they attack the landowners and the self-sufficient people first. Okay, they come after the people in the countryside. It's not that hard to find you. Okay, have you heard of Ruby Ridge? Because that guy lived very remotely and the FBI still came and shot his kids. Okay, you never really get off grid because we are basically living in a surveillance state. So just get that one down. And the communists have access to all this stuff, even if they didn't. What did they do in the 1950s? What did they do in the 60s? What did the Cubans do when they rose up with Castro as the communists came to power in that country? They drove out throughout the countryside and they attacked the people that were like being able to provide for themselves. You know what I mean? So you can't necessarily escape this kind of stuff. And so how do you deal with it? Now, for me, I, like I said, I'm not trying to build a homestead to escape the communist revolution. Instead, I just want to run back to my roots and be more grounded with my family. And that's just something I'm passionate about. So it's just separate for me. In the book, you guys, the book makes it really clear that you have to have community. You cannot go live out in your remote cabin and actually make it. And here's why. Number one, for the benefits of it, people have strengths and it's okay for you to not know how to do literally everything. Okay. So you can benefit from the people in your community being um, skilled in these things. And something that I think of often is like Little House on the Prairie with Laura Ingalls Wilder, where it, they have the one person that comes from house to house whenever the woman in the house is having a baby, or they have the doctor come whenever the people in the house need that. And they have somebody who specializes in each skill. And so if you're trying to actually survive long term in a, in a situation like this, you're going to benefit from having a positive community. But that's not really the main reason why you need to actually have people around you. Here's what the book makes clear. Bad people, and this is a classic human nature story, bad people who cannot build anything on their own, who cannot produce things on their own. They need to get resources too. They're trying to survive too, but they can't do it on their own, okay? So they need to get resources, but in dirty ways. They will band together. They will come after you and your resources that you built up honestly with your own hands that you worked hard to get for you and your family and your own group of people. And so you need allies. You are nearly forced into building a positive community because you and your family are not going to be able to protect what you've built up all by yourself because bad people out there will come together. That's why it's like I get so frustrated when you hear people say, well, I want world peace. And why do we have to support the military? And, and why do we have to have these battles and these wars? I'm definitely not a nation builder. I don't desire that kind of stuff. But human history is filled with bad people rising up and specifically just having evil in their heart, a desire to hurt others or build up their own nation at the expense of our lives. And good people need to band together to prevent that from happening. It's not like the good people are like, you know what we want to do? We just want to go find some bad guys and kill them. Bad people are bad and they want to do bad things. Is that such a crazy concept? 
So in the book, this is what ends up happening is you have a lot of people that are in the more urban areas, a lot of the city folk, or even just, you know, maybe they're out in the country and they just can't create anything either. They have banded together in the book and they basically force the good people in towns to create a strong fortified community because they are coming out of those more populated areas to try and find resources to kill and to steal those resources from the good people. And watching the way the society broke down so quickly and how it literally became a feuding match of little wars between the towns was crazy. So very, very interesting. But yeah, bottom line is it's like a little human nature and human history lesson. The book is really, it was fascinating. They will come out from those cities and into the countryside in mobs. And you have to ask yourself, will you be able to protect your family on the remote location that you've built if something like that ever happened? If you could, awesome. But the book makes it kind of clear like this is why you benefit from having allies. On top of that too, just a little side note that made me think of this. I'm going to talk about it in a second and suggest a different book, The Federalist by Publius, a.k.a. three of our founders that wrote this when they were advocating for the ratification of the U.S. Constitution. But one of the main components that they talk about is that when we band together and we form a union, instead of becoming tiny separate countries that that should be states in the republic, we protect ourselves from international enemies, from people that want to invade us. Because when they see us all banded together, they're going to see a larger force and they're going to be warded off from even wanting to attack us in the first place. So that kind of connected to a larger scale macro thing, like creating the union when our founders did so. But let's move on because I actually have a nonfiction book. I get asked about this a lot too. A nonfiction modern book that every person listening to this needs to read. The name of this book is Age of Entitlement, and it's by Christopher Caldwell. I have described it in many ways, but I I feel bad saying this. It feels kind of illegal to read. It feels like I am committing wrong think. <laughs> it feels like I'm committing wrong think against the regime just reading the book. And I mean that in a good way. It is so eye-opening. There's some parts where it's like, you know, that's that's a harsh truth right there. And, and I'm going to read you guys some segments of the book. But it's it's really hard for me to really cover all of it because it's topic by topic for each chapter. But it's basically America declining since the 60s. What actually happened? Because if you look at the decline of the country, it all started really right there. That's when everything, the, I mean, the prices of things skyrocketed. You saw the rise of these woke mobs really start to form. You saw the decline of our, our urban areas, of our suburbs. We saw the leaving of American companies to go overseas. I mean, it's really, when you look at that timeline, that's when everything started to crumble. So what the heck happened? And I swear it feels illegal to read. So what does that mean? You got to go read it. I don't recommend buying copies of books all the time. I don't want to waste your guys' money, but I'm telling you, you need a physical copy of this book. So please go and buy this book. Again, I don't say that to sell it or anything. I don't get any money from that. It's truly my favorite book right now. And I tell everybody to read it. I gift it to people quite often. Like it's a big deal to me. So just some sections from the book that I want to read to you guys. One of the concepts he talks about is how 
we need to stop letting politicians and talking heads continue to try and hammer home some false point that America is just a concept or an idea. We are a country. We have borders. We have citizens. We have laws. And America, what I, I, we hear this a lot. Politicians say uh, America will always exist. You know, we'll always live in the minds. And, and no, we're a country. So this is what he says about that. An idea of Americans as something other than a people had begun to take hold of the political class. Ours was a creedal nation, a country united not by race or by history, but by belief in certain ideas. This sounds like open-mindedness, but if not managed carefully, it can turn into the opposite. A country you can join by simply changing your mind is a country you can fall out of by doing the same. On literally dozens of occasions as president, Barack Obama described highly specific political opinions, always those of his own party, as expressing who we are as Americans. Not since the McCarthy era had Americans been told that to disagree with the authorities was to forfeit one's membership in the American nation. Obama always seemed to enjoy playing with fire that way. Okay, so that was that first quote. And now I want to talk to you guys about how he says that we're basically dealing with a nation with feuding constitutions right now. We have our original constitution, and then we have the new concept of leadership in our country and change in our country, which is rooted in suing each other over civil rights law. This is what he says. At some point in the course of the decades, what had seemed in 1964 to be merely an ambitious reform revealed itself to have been something more. The changes of the 1960s with civil rights at their core were not just a major new element in the Constitution. They were a rival Constitution, with which the original one was frequently incompatible. And the incompatibility would worsen as the civil rights regime was built out. Much of what we have called polarization or incivility in recent years is something more grave. It is the disagreement over which of the two constitutions should prevail. The de jour constitution of 1788, with all the traditional forms of jurisprudential legitimacy and centuries of American culture behind it, or the de facto constitution of 1964, which lacks this traditional kind of legitimacy, but commands the near unanimous endorsement of judicial elites and civic educators and the passionate allegiance of those who received it as a liberation. The increasing necessity that citizens choose between these two orders and the poisonous conflict into which it ultimately drove the country is what this book describes. So he then gets into how the Civil Rights Act created a nation where change doesn't come from legislation and proper constitutional process in our government anymore. Instead, it comes from suing each other or threatening to sue each other under that law. Okay, so here's what he says. Plainly, the Civil Rights Acts had wrought a change in the country's constitutional culture. The innovations of the 1960s had given progressives control over the most important levers of government, control that would endure for as long as the public was afraid of being called racist. Not just excluded and exploited Southern blacks, but all aggrieved minorities now sought to press their claims under this new model of progressive governance. The civil rights model of executive orders, litigation, and court-ordered redress eventually became the basis for resolving every question pitting a newly emergent idea of fairness against old traditions. 
the persistence of different roles for men and women, the moral standing of homosexuality, the welcome that is due to immigrants, the consideration befitting wheelchair-bound people. Civil rights gradually turned into a license for government to do what the Constitution would not previously have permitted. It moved beyond the context of Jim Crow laws almost immediately, winning what its apostles saw as liberation after liberation. And that really, you guys, to me, was one of the most profound aspects of it. Because in our school, all we really learn about the Civil Rights Act was the fact that it created equality finally. It was something wonderful to bring. But in reality, we have to look at the steps after that. Is it opened a door to be able to sue each other over accusations of denying equality or fairness to other Americans. And we see this time after time, if you think about it. I mean, the person, who is it? The baker that continues to get sued just because he won't make a cake for a gay wedding. It's stuff like that. It's time after time. People are sued now over allegations that they are violating the Civil Rights Act in some shape or form. And it has nothing to do with liberating black people from the struggles that they faced in the earlier 20th century. So let's move on to the last thing. And this is kind of a more aggressive stance. And so I know it's kind of hard because we've we've been molded into a certain thought process when it comes to cheering on the men who were in this growth phase of our country and a part of it. But I really ask you to consider like keeping an open mind on this. World War II vets would, in their old age, be lionized as their country's greatest generation for their achievements abroad and at home. But considered as a generation of domestic policymakers, they compiled a record that was modest in most things, dismal in many. We need to look not only at how they stormed Omaha Beach, but also at the identically shoddy, low-slung, asphalt-moted, asbestos-lined brick junior high schools that they built from coast to coast and deemed good enough for their children. Not only at how the managers of the Marshall Plan provided the resources to rebuild the bomb-wrecked city centers of Rotterdam and Frankfurt, but also at how between 1962 and 1968, Boston city planners led by the architect I.M. Pei destroyed eight acres of ancient streets, apartments, and factories and stores around Scully Square in order to build nothing except Kalman, McKennell, and Knowles Windblown Wasteland, City Hall Plaza, centered on a mildewy concrete monument to government high-handedness. Quote, go right to it. That's the way I feel about it, said President Harry Truman in 1952, urging Washington, D.C. authorities to proceed with a plan that would demolish the downtown row houses in which 25,000 residents lived. They had included Al Johnson and Marvin Gaye and replaced them with concrete towers. Now, this section of this that really shocked me is, is true of we did these wonderful world global things. But at the time, is we were also building these depressing looking buildings, this nasty architecture. We were settling as a nation and as leaders and building what he calls shoddy, low-slung, asphalt-moted, asbestos-lined brick junior high schools that they deemed good enough for their children. I mean, that is really powerful to me. So the book is full of situations like this that really make you question the kind of decisions that we've been making for the last century. And I really enjoy it. So I encourage you guys all to get it. 
And you know what? I am going over on time for this episode, so I'm going to have to do the building your library part in the next episode. So just stay tuned for that. And thank you guys for, for tuning in. I hope you guys grab these books and I'll see you next time.